I thought of a number of titles for this sermon. Uh, I thought it could be, for example, if only I had Rachel's looks, you know, because there's this sort of rivalry going on between the two women. They're, um, they're jealous of each other. They're motivated by envy. It's quite disgusting in some ways, the envy that they have for each other, because they're willing to use children as a way of making a point against each other. But what the title I came up with was When Sisters Go to War. When Sisters Go to War. I don't know if you have siblings, whether you have a, a brother or a sister or whatever, but sibling rivalry, myself and my brother, we used to sort of compete in everything. So, for example, we would be doing the dishes and we would be drying the dishes and we would be comparing the piles. You know, we would suddenly get quicker and quicker. Everything had to be a competition. Because I was the younger brother, I was well used to losing. Uh, I lost snooker to him, pool to him, soccer to him, and whatever. Um, and sibling rivalry is quite a common thing. Now, you imagine sibling rivalry with two women, and then you throw into the fact that they're married to the same man. And then you have a recipe for terrible sibling rivalry. And perhaps... Rachel looked at Leah and said, if only I had the children that she could produce. And perhaps Leah looked at Rachel and said, well, if I had her looks, then I would be content. And the problem with discontent and comparing is it's a, it's a road towards unhappiness and bitterness. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that rivalry rules or ruins, did I say rules? No, ruins our peace. Rivalry ruins our peace. Let's look at verse 1. So if you have your Bibles out, look at verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore no children, she envied her sister, and she said to her husband, Give me children, or I die. Wow. You know, if you get to this place in life where you say something like, give me this or I die. My life is not worth living without, you're in a really bad place. Whatever it is, my life is not worth living if my marriage doesn't become better. If I don't find someone to marry. If I don't get that career. If I don't achieve those grades. If I don't have that possession. If I don't take those holidays. If I'm not recognized. If I'm overlooked. My life is not worth living. You can't sustain yourself in that position. When you say my life is not worth living unless I get or I achieve or I have the following. And for a Christian to look at these words and say, my life is not worth living unless I die, well, we can't say that. Because in Christ we have every spiritual blessing according to the book of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing. C.S. Lewis quoted an unknown author who said this. He said, the one who has God and everything else has no more than the one who is God only. The one who is God and everything else is no more than the one who is God only. Because by comparison to what we have in God, everything else is infinitesimally small. 
And he is the one in whom we are to find our peace and contentment and wholeness. I was away at Irish Preachers Conference this week, and I was thinking to myself, every sermon I preach at the moment, I've kind of the same application. And the same application is you need to know how much God loves you. And the problem I was having with that is, but how? How do we need to know? How do we, how do we access that? And then I was reading this little book. Uh, by, by chance, I chose this book because the, the author's name came to me in a dream. Now, it wasn't quite that miraculous. I think I'd seen it. And, but anyway, I bought this book, and it's Jesus' Lover of My Soul. It's a reflection of the Song of Songs and the love that Christ has for his church, the bridegroom has for his people. And I lay in bed thinking, and he, he had a, a verse from Song of Songs chapter 2, and it talked about the bridegroom seeking the bride's face. And it's a picture of God seeking our face. You see, the Psalms tell us to seek God's face, but you realize that God is seeking to look us in the face. He's coming to smile into our face for us to see his love. And I lay there thinking about that. And I'm not someone who by nature finds it easy to think that God loves me. But it's what transforms us. And if only Rachel could see. If only Rachel could see that she was deeply loved by God. She would realize that the person who has God and everything else has no more than the person who has God alone. Jacob, or Judah, is really insensitive, though, isn't he? Look at what he says to her. He says to her, look, uh, she goes, give me children or I die. She's looking to the wrong place because it's not God who will give her, not Judah who will, not Jacob who will give her children. She needs to look to God. But she goes to Jacob and says, give me children or I die. And he says what's theologically true, but terribly insensitive. He says, but it's not me who's holding you back from having children. It's God. And he reminds me of Elkanah in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. You know, when, when uh, Hannah goes and, and she goes to her husband and she's weeping because she can't conceive. And her husband says, uh, you know, aren't I enough for you? How dreadfully insensitive. And he fails in many ways because his father, Isaac, when his mother couldn't have children, what he did is he brought her before God in prayer. But he doesn't. And she doesn't go to God in prayer, but comes up with a foolish plan. She'll give her maidservant, Bildah, to be a substitute mother, and she'll have the children for her. It's very cruel, though, isn't it? Can you imagine what it was like for Bilda? Probably not much choice in this situation. And then she starts to have children through Bilda, and she starts to do this in order to get one over on Leah, her sister. Look how pathetic the whole thing becomes. And then the second child she calls Naphtali, which means to wrestle, and she says, because I've won. It's all about the rivalry that she has with her sister. Her whole existence, unless I die or I'll die if I don't get one over on my sister. How 
terrible that is. Matthew Henry says about this incident, he says, can a woman become so low that she would use a child to hit someone over the head? That's exactly what Rachel does. And then Leah joins in. This is the really sad thing. Do you remember last week when we looked at Leah? She had been trying to win her husband's love. Each time, you know, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. And then Judah comes along and she goes, now I'll praise him. In other words, she found freedom. She found freedom from having to win and find her identity in the love of an uncaring husband. And now what happens is she loses that peace. And so she enters into this competition with her sister and she gives her husband, a maidservant, and the maidservant has children, and now she's rejoicing to get one over on her sister again. And she calls one of the children Asher, which means happy. And Asher meaning happy. And then she says, the women will see that I'm happy. In other words, look at, I'm doing this so that other people will view my life and say, I've got it together. How relevant in a Facebook generation. How relevant in an online generation when, you know, things that we would have in the past saw as private, now we want to show the world how much we've got it together. And she wants to show the world, look, I've got it together. I'm being blessed by God. I'm now happy and people will see I'm happy. But she's not. And then 14 to 21. The discontent spreads. It gets more pathetic. Reuben is probably five to six years old at this stage, her eldest child, and he's out in the fields and he finds a rare flower that they use the word mandrake to translate, but the Hebrew is, it's a love flower. It may be given Rachel's reaction that this is associated with fertility. And so Rachel really wants it. And look at how pathetic things come when, you know, she goes to Leah and says, give me your child's flower. In verse 15, she says, is it not enough that you took my husband and now you want my son's flower as well? The paranoia between these two women. And remember that Rachel's big motivation for having children is to get one over on Leah. And they've lost, Leah has, you know, lost her peace and Rachel is not happy. And yet if you looked at them, if you were to ask them, they might have said, they might have said something like, you know, Hannah would, or Leah would have said, if I had Rachel's looks, then I'd be happy. But Rachel isn't happy. Leah, Hannah, Rachel says, if I was able to produce children like Rachel, but, or like Leah, but she's not happy. And then verse 19 This time, what happens is in verse 19, there's a a silly situation where Rachel basically hires out her husband for the sake of those mandrakes so that she could have children. And the mandrakes don't work. And there's just this scene of discontent. And in verse 19, Leah has gone back to being um, 
finding her identity, and it says, this time my husband will love me because I have six sons. Again, she's gone back to finding her identity in her husband. She's lost her freedom. Now, how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this discontent? How do we overcome this competitiveness? How do we overcome comparing our lives with other people? How do we overcome, you know, maybe the offshoots of sibling rivalry? Maybe you had a parent who favored one over the other. How do we overcome it? The answer, I think, is in gratitude. In seeing what God has given you. Remember that quote from C.S. Lewis, the person who has Christ and everything else has no more than the person who has Christ alone. Do you see what you have in Jesus? Do you see that you have all you need? That every other achievement is secondary? That every other possession doesn't matter? That in Christ you have everything you need. Sometimes when we go and we think, but you know, and it's, it's, it's almost perverse when it's of someone who's not yet a Christian. And you look, but if I had the, the marriage that they had, if I had the house that they had, if I had the honor that they had, and you think, but this person doesn't have Jesus and you're envying them, how strange that would be. The person who is Christ and everything has no more than the person who is Christ. And then we come to the end of this passage. The end of this passage, verse 22, and God softens Rachel's heart. Verse 22, God remembered Rachel. It says he listens to her, which means that Rachel is now actually praying. Before she was just going to her husband and asking her husband to give her children, but now she's actually praying. And God remembers her, and if you think about it, she has done nothing in this chapter to deserve anything from God. Everything that she has done has been despicable, and God remembered her. Because God is gracious and kind and shows us a love that we don't deserve. And God remembers you. And when God remembers us, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten us. What it means is that he's about to act. And he's about to act and he gives Rachel children. And she says, she's, God has taken away my reproach because in that culture... In that culture, it was seen as dishonorable not to be able to have children. And then at the end, she has a, an expression of faith. And, and it's debated what exactly she's saying here, but she says, my Lord will give me another son. And she's using the name for Yahweh. And it seems to be that she's seen God's love. She's seen God's love, and she knows that he'll fulfill his promises. And what happens then is that she does have another child, but the sad thing is that when the other child comes, and it's not a punishment or anything, but she dies in childbirth with the giving birth to Benjamin, the son of my sorrows. But what I love about this is here is Rachel 
constantly being bitter. Here is Rachel making terrible choices. Here is Rachel, and she is envying and motivated by competition. And here is Rachel who's done nothing to deserve God's favor, and yet God in his immense kindness turns her back. Because as I think um, Edwin had a slide up there, whatever you have done, it's not too far to turn back. And Rachel has hit a fork in the road continuously because every time you face a choice, every time you face a choice, what happens is that you've got an option to grow closer to God if there's pressure on you or to go towards bitterness. And every single time Rachel had chosen bitterness. And yet even though she'd gone so far down that road of bitterness, God kept pursuing her kept loving her, kept seeing her, and eventually turned her towards him. He is a very kind God. So let's finish. I was sitting at the back beside Vincent, and Vincent said to me, gosh, that's a lot of kids when um, the reading was going. It's a lot of kids. And actually, that's the point. You see, the point of this story is that God had promised Abram that you would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And, and these people, and in all of the stories that we're looking at in Genesis, they're really messed up people. And what we're being told is that God uses messed up people to achieve his purposes. That God fulfills his plans despite our wickedness and envy and discontent and jealousies. God does it. And that's what he's doing here. He's fulfilling that plan, that promise to Abram for stars in the sky, sand in the seashore, even though he has to use a people who are messed up and broken, a people like you and me, a people who are imperfect, a people who get it wrong, a people who let him down. And yet here is God, and he is willing to use you and me for the building of his kingdom. And one last thing just to finish. I thought about the fact, you know, the Bible is very real about the the pain that people go through when they can't have children. But the ultimate promise is not that you will have physical children. It always points on to something greater. And so you get to Isaiah looking forward to the kingdom of Christ, and it says, I will give you a memorial that sons and daughters could not give you. Because one of the things about not having children for someone that makes it painful is that Will I be remembered? And what God says is, you will be remembered by me in a way that no child could remember you. Because great-grandchildren will have forgotten you. And there will be a day when no one remembers you. Your name will be just a name on a tombstone and people will know nothing about you. And people try to fight that fear of death by trying to leave a legacy. But all our legacies are gone, eventually. No one cares, but not to God. 
And when he talks about sons and daughters as well here, we're reminded of the fact that as Christians, we're a part of a family. And so the single person who may never had children has spiritual sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And you might not think that that's not as great. It's better. In the kingdom of God, because God is faithful and he's fulfilling his plans even through broken and messed up people like you and me. Elijah, would you pray?